National leadership is absolutely crucial. It's imperative that resilience is embedded into land use planning and development decisions and that national leadership should drive these reforms. It's really quite an exciting time. Resilience is going to come with these new forms of energy. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Now, as I mentioned to you this morning, it's one of the regulatory areas that we are looking at is the area of land use and planning. So that's why this session is entitled Planning for Resilience in the Future Grid 2040. And it's my pleasure to introduce the speakers in this panel. Dr. Anne Callies is a senior lecturer in law at RMIT University Australia. Anne researches in the area of energy transition and climate law with the special focus on renewable energy and electricity markets, network regulation and legal frameworks for infrastructure resilience and microgrids. Her research draws on her study and professional experience in Australia and Germany. She holds a German law degree, an LLM and a PhD, both completed at Melbourne Law School. So Anne will be our first speaker. And our next speaker will be uh, Stephanie Vitala. And Stephanie is from practice. She's a partner in the Planning, Environment and Government Group at Denton's Australia in Sydney. With a diverse practice, Stephanie acts for corporations and individuals on a range of planning and environmental law issues associated with the development of land in New South Wales. And she also is a litigator acting in the Land and Environment Court of New South Wales and the Supreme Court of um, and in the Supreme Court of New South Wales as well. So Anne will give us the Victorian perspective, Steph Stephanie the New South Wales perspective, and then Dr. Philippa England will follow with the Queensland case study. She's an adjunct senior lecturer in the law school at Griffith University, Queensland, specializing in planning and environmental law. She holds an LLB, an LLM, and a PhD from London University. Her publications include several contributions to law journals, as well as four books on planning, one of which she is the chief author, and her latest book is um, as a co-author, and that book is entitled Environmental Planning and Climate Law in Queensland, which was published in 2020. So welcome to all of the panelists, and thank you very much for joining this project. When we commenced the project in 2019, it was really essential that we did uh, get in contact with and collaborate with planning lawyers because of the fact that all of this new infrastructure, as discussed in the first session, is uh, slated for moving away from coal. There is a massive renewable energy transition underway. And as the Australian Energy Market Operators 2022 Integrated System Plan indicates, that to move away from coal by 2050, we need a ninefold increase in utility scale 
uh, variable renewable energy, a five-fold increase in distributed solar PV, treble the firming capacity from alternative sources to coal, including batteries, hydro storage, gas-fired generation, and smart meters. The power system needs to prepare for 100% instantaneous penetration. And importantly for our presentation this afternoon, we're going to need 10,000 kilometers of new transition to connect this generation to the grid. Next slide, please. Thank you. And this is what the future grid is going to look like with all of this new capacity as well as uh, transmission. And just to interpret that for you, the dark lines are the committed and anticipated development of the grid, which is already in progress. The green lines are what AEMO refers to as actionable um, development, and this is where regulatory approval is in progress, and so it should be commencing now, um, whereas the, the purple lines are future ISP projects and some investigations are still required in order to get regulatory approvals for those. Now, just to give you an example, that the idea is that all of this new generation capacity is going to happen in renewable energy zones in all of the states. So I'm just showing you the map of renewable energy zones in New South Wales, but Stephanie will be uh, showing you this map again. The main message is just to know that the states are going to be heavily involved in developing the future grid. So essentially the Australian energy regulator in 2022 has acknowledged that the future grid um, needs to be uh, more resilient, but their definition of resilience is the following. It's the network's ability to continue to adequately provide network services and recover those services when subjected to disruptive events. So when thinking about land use planning and the resilience of the future grid, our questions are, where should we build the future grid, the generation capacity, as well as the transmission capacity, all the states and all of the developers, everyone involved in the electricity sector has the information that they need. So planning law does have the tools to balance competing land use needs and the opportunity to assess the location and the impact of projects. But the question we ask in this session is, is planning law the best placed framework to do a holistic assessment of a project, taking account of specific locations? So in Australia, uh, planning law is state law, but the National Adaptation Policy Office has recently released a policy paper on regulating uh, Australian infrastructure in the face of climate change, and they emphasize that national leadership is absolutely crucial. They say it's imperative that resilience is embedded into land use planning and development decisions, and that national leadership should drive these reforms. We need new planning tools, which will integrate new and emerging data about disaster and climate risk respond to best practice and better account 
for place-based and localized opportunities, but at the same time, while thinking about the strengths of those places for infrastructure, we need to think about the weaknesses. Now, if these new planning tools are developed, then we're going to have more resilient infrastructure. But the Adaptation Policy Office says that we need this clear, coherent approach from the national to the state to the regional and then to the local planning um, systems. And essentially what they say is that if resilience is inadequately valued in project proposals, then infrastructure asset owners and operators will continue to incur costs for repair, rehabilitation and replacement. And um, of course, this doesn't count the cost to business and the community of service disruption. So therefore, um, it is most effective to consider resilience at the planning phase of infrastructure delivery. But note that the case-based studies that are going to follow are really going to interrogate this question because many of the inquiries into bushfires and floods have said that land use planning is the most potent policy lever of all levers in terms of building resilience in um, electricity and other infrastructure. So as we go through these state-based studies, we'll look at that. Now, when I have had a look at national strategies, such as the climate resilience and adaptation strategy, the disaster risk reduction framework, as well as very recently released national electricity amendment, um, the renewable energy zone planning rule of 2021, there's actually no mention of resilience to extreme weather events in any of these national strategies or rules. And there's no requirement for electricity infrastructure to be resilient to extreme weather events. So far, so far we cannot look to the um, federal government for any guidance in this regard. And that is contrary to what the Adaptation Office has um, told us. So some preliminary lessons is that uh, we think first about timing. And unfortunately, the planning assessment seems to occur too late in the project development cycle, by which time there's been a lot of investment already in these projects. Um, the resilience of the infrastructure, well, planning law focuses more on the impact of development on the environment. It doesn't necessarily consider the impact of the environment or extreme weather events in our case on the development. So we see a lack of holistic assessment because planning law works on a project by project individual assessment basis. And so as you'll see, as we go through the presentations, we query whether in fact land use planning is the place to solve the resilience question. And so I'm now going to ask Anne um, Callies if she can please um, begin her presentation. Thanks very much, Anne. Uh, thank you so much for the introduction, Rosemary. It's been fantastic. Um, uh, I'm dialing in from the unceded land of the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation here in the inner north of Melbourne. And I would like to respectfully acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. So I have Victoria, which has been actually 
Um, I've written on planning law in Victoria before and on resilience, but you know there has been a lot of change recently, which made that you know quite exciting. Change we haven't seen coming through in actual decision making, but um, which hopefully addresses some of the issues already raised by Rosemary. So quick look at um, our map, because I think we all included the renewable energy zone map. Um, and then more specifically drill down at on you know into what the law and regulations um, of land use planning in Victoria um, say about uh, resilient infrastructure and a little bit of a first lessons and outlook um, of um, where we may be going from here. So um, it's it's all happening in Victoria as far as commitments are going at the moment. I've put up the Climate Change Act uh, 2017 upfront. We do have an overarching policy commitment in Victoria um, to resilience, to build resilience of the state's infrastructure. Uh, through effective adaptation and disaster, disaster preparedness action, which kind of like narrows it down again, if you like. We do not have a definition of what that actually means, uh, but um, what we have seen is it, it does drive planning law regulatory framework adaptation. So just this upfront, what's also happening in Victoria, we have an election coming up in two weeks now, and um, there has been, um, you know, some accelerated um, action around renewable energy targets. So the current legislated uh, targets sit on the left, but we just had election announcement that we are now looking at 95% of the state's electricity um, generated renewably by 2035. Um, we also have. Um, numerical so a 6.3 gigawatt storage target by 2035 we also have four gigawatt of offshore wind capacity by 2035 so the next um 13 years in victoria are going to be very very busy and with that comes uh, enormous investment into actual physical network and generation infrastructure this is our map nicely color coordinated with a bit of rainbow thrown in. So we have uh, six renewable energy zones in Victoria. Uh, I actually had a look at we, we had this discussion as a group, um, you know, how do you how do you choose your zone have has resilience, um, you know, or climate impact or any of this featured at all in a zone selection selection in each of the states. So it, the Victorian zones were selected based on a scorecard assessment um, in AEMO's 2018 integrated system plans. And the criteria uh, to assess were availability of renewable resources, quality of renewable resources, network limitations, and long-term market simulation. No climate adaptation inside anywhere there. What's happening now, uh, this is all in place now, we are seeing um, in particular network investment um, uh, approved, uh, which will be needed to actually grow the renewable generation in these zones. At the moment for Victoria, the biggest um, network project is the um, 
Western Victorian Transmission Network project, you can see that in green kind of connecting into the green, the Western Victorian zone. So between uh, Bulgana and Sydenham, there will be 190 kilometer new overhead transmission line and various terminal stations built and upgraded. That's where we are at, but there is a, a whole number of projects coming through in order to facilitate the zones and just pointing out um, uh, the Gippsland and uh, the Southwest zone, uh, both of which are bordering um, the coast. And this is going to be interesting because this is where offshore wind will be connected and, you know, the associated infrastructure will have to go in there. This is a slide we thought about where to best uh, put it. This is definitely not something that is specific to Victoria, just something I wanted to point out for all three of our presentations. Planning law is one of many assessments. And this is, you know, this is a snapshot. You, you, I'm sure you'll be able to find some other ones that you have to do. Uh, energy infrastructure, huge, costly, um, impactful, local uh, investment uh, projects. So they are going through a whole process of, you know, electricity market regulations already referred to by um, um, by Rosemary earlier, um, you know, usually APBC Act, uh, we have the various state um, environmental impact regimes in Victoria, the um, Environment Effects Act um, coming in, heritage protections, native vegetation protections, uh, there is um, emergency management and critical infrastructure acts impacting, and, and then there's planning law. There's a little bit of cross-referencing between some of these, especially as where they are state law, but uh, not necessarily between all of these. So for example, the environment impact assessments um, uh, will usually be you know, accepted um, as part of the EPBC Act assessment and um, also uh, taken uh, into account in planning law, at least in Victoria. But um, the electricity market regulation, the siting of transmission infrastructure in particular um, doesn't really talk much to the other parts of this. And um, uh, Rosemary and one of her later slides just went through some of the national frameworks and says, you know, no one is mentioning resilience here. And I've just seen the um, uh, Energy Security Board transmission access um, directions paper come out. It must have been the last couple of days. I've literally just seen it. And I did a search for the words resilience, climate or adaptation, none of which are mentioned. So this is the major investment framework, um, you know, how they get things paid. Um, uh, where do you cite from a market perspective and they don't really interface with these ideas, if you like. So let's drill down into Victoria. Uh, the main, um, the LEAD Act, if you like, the Planning and Environment Act, the PEA. And when planning applications get assessed, the responsible authority has to consider a long list of things. And I've just um, grabbed one out, which I want to talk a little bit more about. Uh, one is objectives of planning, um, the relevant planning scheme, any applicable policy strategy code or guideline. And one I've pulled out because I've talked to my colleagues and that seems to be Victoria specific and also picks up on something that Rosemary mentioned, uh, we actually have a, a requirement to consider the impact the environment may have on the use or development, uh, which 
sounds very exciting, but I've I've done a search um, through uh, various um, planning decisions, and I couldn't find this, you know, activated in any meaningful way. So it is there. It says the uh, authority should consider the impact of um, the project on the environment and the impact of the environment on the project, but there is not really any um, any case law or planning panel reports that really, you know, work with that. But, you know, it definitely has potential. Uh, for the other three, so objectives of planning, um, this will be the same, I think, in all of the state legislations. Everything is an objective of planning. I've just um, uh, highlighted the ones that really um, fit with uh, what we are looking at. So, you know, the sustainable use and development of land, uh, protection of natural and man-made resources, and also specific in section E to protect public utilities and other assets, um, ultimately for the benefit of the community. So this idea of we need to um, we need to keep the lights on, if you like, really place here. And this is, I mean, this is why we talk resilience because we have um, massive disasters and um, usually electricity is the first thing that goes down. So for the planning schemes, um, as the point of interest, so in Victoria, all the planning schemes have a um, huge amount of preset content, the so-called Victorian planning provisions. That's like um, centrally, set uh, planning policy which becomes part of every single planning scheme so they apply across the state identical for every single uh, um, scheme there is also um, local content uh, but it is really the big game are the VPP the Victorian planning provisions which provide the uh, state policy planning content of, of each planning scheme Planning scheme is um, um, together with the map and ordinance, so delegated uh, legislation. So you know, it provides the like the nitty gritty of the regulatory framework for any planner that needs to make a decision on a particular project. And uh, we had a number of 2022 amendments. Interestingly, the amendments directly in their um, explanatory um, in their explanations say we are doing this because of the Climate Change Act, which tells us to introduce resilience. So you can see this kind of trickling down. We have a new um, or a changed clause 1301, uh, which talks about climate change impacts, uh, which uh, requires um, planners to um, adapt to the impacts of climate change through risk-based planning. Uh, to identify risk areas and to integrate land use planning with emergency management decision making and site and design developments should minimize the risk from natural hazards. We also specifically on energy infrastructure have clause 1901 also um, new and improved in I think June 2022 which now expressly requires planners to ensure energy generation storage, transmission and distribution infrastructure and projects are resilient uh, to the impacts of climate change. These are new. So how they will play out in you know, planning practice, if you like, uh, remains to be seen. Um, but they are now quite expressly require this type of planning. 
there is another question about that when these decisions are made, are we too late in the process to appropriately consider this? And that's something I think, you know, um, we can query more generally at the end of this project. But um, the words are there on paper, how they will be enlivened. That's really what will be the question for Victoria. Finally, I just want to mention, you know, as I said, you also have to take into account all the relevant um, guidelines, policies, and so on. There are wind uh, energy and solar energy facilities guidelines. The solar one expressly talks about um, resilience. The wind does not. Both of them, though, talk about uh, community resilience and you know the the requirement to keep this in mind and i think we have another presentation later on on that idea of resilience because we we often kind of infrastructure resilience you can easily fall into the engineering trap of resilient is what doesn't break basically so as i said what does it mean in practice we will have to see so far uh, resilience does get referenced but not really built out in um, you know planning panel reports that are uh, publicly available and so on there is a real question around timing and what i really want to point out and i'm mindful my time is running out is that uh, victorian government is currently developing a victorian transmission investment framework which really talks about how do we make sure we appropriately connect um it, in and to the renewable energy zones. And um, this investment framework, which is currently in draft, um, you know, submissions have just closed. So we'll see, you know, how this works its way through the system. So we haven't got the final version yet. Uh, they actually really uh, pick up on that issue that um, land use planning comes in the very end. And there are a couple of things that are proposed at an earlier stage um things like system scenario development strategic land use assessment to identify lowest impact and most acceptable areas within renewable energy zones where transmission will be cited multiple criteria analysis uh, you know which really seeks to balance environmental heritage and social values and all of this should happen before we go down to you know procurement and um the renewable investment received uh, um, the um, uh, investment tests for uh, transmission infrastructure and so on, which usually comes first, and then at the tail end, you are actually starting to talk to the planners. So, again, it's um, I don't have answers. I can see things are happening, but how they will play out in practice will be central to this. If we get, at least for transmission, if we get this new Victorian transmission investment framework, we might be able to consider infrastructure resilience, at least for network infrastructure, much earlier in the piece. And the idea um, floated in the um, directions paper that is out for this one is that then um, the environmental and land use planning assessment and approvals will be informed by these much earlier stages, which will do a kind of risk-based assessment um, and, and a, you know, a proper spatial assessment on, you know, what do you decide where. I think that might be enough for me. Um, so I've got two papers that looked at this, but again, um, things have happened since. So, um, 
uh, hopefully we put something nice together as a team here and that will be the most up to date you can get around this um and that's all for me handing over to the next speakers thanks for listening thanks very much um and i think i think that was an optimistic presentation because of the fact that even though we don't know how it's going to play out yet at least all of those really important words have made it into legislation and VPPs and so on. And for me, the fascinating thing is that it seems, as you say, to all stem from the Climate Change Act. Um, and so that's also encouraging to see that that act is influencing other systems, such as the planning framework. So thank you very much. Okay, Stephanie, well, I now invite you to give your presentation. Thanks very much. Thank you, Rosemary, and thank you for the introduction. And thank you to everybody who's listening this afternoon. So I'm going to deal with uh, a case study from New South Wales to put into perspective for you how climate resilience might play out in practice in New South Wales where there's an assessment of a project uh, that forms part of the renewable energy zone. So the zone I'm going to focus on is uh, the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone. There are five renewable energy zones in New South Wales. The Southwest Renewable Energy Zone, you'll see down in this section, uh, the Central West right in the middle, the New England up the top here. There's a draft Hunter Central Zone here and an indicative Illawarra Renewable Energy Zone uh, down the bottom. Now, the one I'm going to focus on today is this Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone. This is a zoomed in map of that area. And you'll see it's quite a large area. Uh, it was in fact the first declared renewable energy zone in Australia. And it has an intended capacity of three gigawatts. The general location of this zone, which is similar to all of the other renewable energy zones in Australia, has been dictated in large measure by the location of large renewable energy projects in and around the area. So by way of example, for the Central West Arana uh, Renewable Energy Zone, there's a proposal for, there's, I should say, lots of proposals for wind and solar farms. But by way of example, there's a proposal by Asiona for an uh, Arana wind farm south of Dunidu, uh, about 90 kilometres rather from East Dubbo. So that area is sort of down here. So that's, that's been the principal driver for the location of, of these renewable energy zones. But in addition to those matters, land use planning has been looked at. Uh, for instance, the need to avoid uh, agricultural land and other land uses that might not be appropriate. Matters to do with bushfire and flood prone land and lots of other environmental planning issues, uh, Aboriginal heritage sites, matters of that nature and also construction time and cost. Energy Co is the relevant statutory authority in New South Wales who has been appointed uh, under legislation to be responsible for the delivery of the infrastructure and particularly with respect to the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone. Uh, and that, that Energy Co statutory authority is responsible for preparing the environmental assessment reports for that infrastructure. And I should just point out at this point that the separate renewable energy projects which are going to hook into that infrastructure are going to be the subject of, subject of separate assessment. 
and those applications are going to be prepared by the relevant proponents for, for those applications. So, for example, uh, with the Arana Wind Farm, it'll be Asiona who prepares the application, and that goes through a separate environmental assessment process. Today, I'm just going to focus on, by way of an example, uh, the transmission project for the uh, Arana Central West region. The proponent is Energy Coho, which is the statutory authority. The uh, proposed location of the transmission project, just going back to Rosemary's earlier slides, um, and the need for 10,000 kilometres of, of wires and poles to hook in all of this uh, electricity infrastructure, th this is just one component of it. So this transmission project is going to uh, comprise four local government areas. I just would like to give you a sense of the scale of these projects and this one in particular. Four local government areas, Dubbo, the Midwest Regional Council, Upper Hunter and the Warrumbungal Council. It will span four different land use areas. One of them is a primary production zone. The other one's a forestry zone. There's some large lot residential zones. There's a national parks and nature reserve zone. There's an environmental management zone, an infrastructure zone and a heavy industrial zone. So you can see the breadth of land use zones that this infrastructure is going to traverse. It's, it's significant. The proposal is described as comprising 89 kilometres of what we call primary infrastructure. And that infrastructure is really the high voltage transmission lines with the support towers. And that uh, set of transmission lines is going to be between a network at Walla and some proposed substations at Meriwether and along along. There's then going to be 160 kilometres of secondary infrastructure. So these are smaller transmission lines, which are going to connect the storage, energy storage projects like the wind farms uh, to the large uh, high voltage power lines, which then feed into the ultimate electricity network. There's a proposal as part of this uh, transmission project for a new switching station. And that's adjacent to the transgrid um, substation, which currently exists. And there's a proposal eventually to upgrade some of that transgrid uh, infrastructure at the substation. There'll be two new substations at Meritheri and along along, and there'll be ancillary infrastructure, including access roads and temporary accommodation for the workers. This next slide gives you an indication of the extent of this proposed transmission network. So the black lines you'll see are the, and this plan I should say comes from a scoping report prepared by Energy Co uh, dated September last, uh, this year rather. Uh, and the, the black lines show the project study area, uh, which is sort of the, the indicative area where this transmission infrastructure is going to sit. And you'll see the extent of it. So uh, there's a new energy hub here a new one here at Meritheri in the middle. The Walla uh, switching station is down in the southern section and there'll be lines all in between connecting it. I'm going to look at the planning framework in New South Wales to give you a sense of how uh, climate change and resilience plays into the assessment for approvals for infrastructure of this nature. 
In New South Wales, the Environment Planning and Assessment Act is the overarching piece of planning law that we look to when we work out the planning pathway for assessment and approval of development. This is all development, whether it be a house extension or large infrastructure work. This is the primary piece of legislation that we look to in the first instance. Uh, this sort of infrastructure, these transmission projects, will be uh, assessed under what's called Part 5 of the Environmental Planning Assessment Act, and in particular, Division 5.2. And this is, in effect, a fast-track approval process where the Minister for Planning in New South Wales is the consent authority, and he or she approves the infrastructure. This transmission line in the uh, central West Arana region has been declared as critical state significant infrastructure under uh, a New South Wales planning instrument called the Planning Systems um, State Environmental Planning Policy. And critical state infrastructure is infrastructure that the Minister for Planning deems is essential for economic, environmental or social reasons. Significantly for an assessment of uh, state infrastructure, state significant infrastructure, the relevant provisions of other subordinate legislation or, or regulatory instruments uh, are turned off. So if, if you were building a house extension and you were in a floodplain area, you might have to comply with some fairly onerous conditions in relation to how you build that house. You might have to have to raise floorboards and you might have to have egress and easements or all sorts of uh, measures to mitigate the impacts of flooding on your house. Those provisions are effectively turned off for this state significant infrastructure. There are other approvals under state legislation which may be required for this sort of infrastructure. Uh, but in effect, because it is state significant infrastructure, uh, those other bodies can't refuse to grant those individual approvals. So, for example, a Roads Act approval if, if the infrastructure is going to run in a road corridor. Um, and there's also Commonwealth approvals for matters that affect uh, species that are critically endangered at a Commonwealth level under the EPBC Act. This is a snapshot of the process for the preparation and assessment of an application uh, for critical significant infrastructure and relevantly for this particular transmission project. The first step is to make an application to the Department of Planning and there's a scoping report that is prepared which accompanies that application. Once that application has been submitted, there's an obligation under the legislation for the Planning Secretary to issue environmental assessment requirements and to indicate what other approvals might be required. Now, those environmental assessment requirements are often referred to as SEERS, and those SEERS assess and set out the matters that the environmental impact statement should then address. Critically for this particular project, the transmission project, uh, the SEERS were released in October last year, and I've been through those in quite a lot of detail. And it's interesting to note that most of the SEERS deal with the situation where, uh, not deal with the situation, but, but require the EIS to look at the impacts of the proposed development on the environment, rather than the impact of the environment on the infrastructure, which I'll come back to. It's a common theme in the uh, regulatory documents. 
so that these years set out things for example that there's a section to do with hazards and risks and they identify uh, the need for the EIS to deal with an assessment of potential hazards and risks associated with electric magnetic fields from those transmission lines. There's a requirement for a contamination report. There's a requirement for an assessment of bushfire and emergency risks, but particularly in relation to public safety uh, and emergency egress and evacuation and to demonstrate compliance with uh, what we have in New South Wales it's a document called Planning for Bushfire Protection 2019, which is the relevant standard against which applications are assessed where bushfire prone land is involved. But so the CEAS deal with primarily the impacts of the proposal on the environment. The EIS will then be prepared based on those CEAS. And there's also requirements under the environmental planning and assessment regulations. Uh, and there's some guidelines also that are picked up. Under the again, under the environmental planning and assessment regulations and the guidelines, the focus is very much on a description of the likely environmental impact arising from the infrastructure. That is the impact caused to the environment by the infrastructure. Uh, and it also picks up the principles of ecologically sustainable development, which are the precautionary principle and the intergenerational equity principle, conservation of biological diversity, but again, all of those principles deal with um, the impact of the infrastructure on the environment rather than the other way around. The EIS will then be, so in terms of the project, the transmission project that I'm talking about, um, we're only up to this stage here where the SEERS have been issued and the EIS is yet to be prepared. Once the EIS is prepared, it will go on public exhibition. The indicative timeframe for that is 2023. There will then be submissions made by the community and relevant stakeholders, including the council and various others who have an interest uh, in the application and the area of land which will be affected by the transmission project. The next stage will then be uh, the preparation of a report which summarises the effect and the summary of all of those submissions that have been made, that energy, sorry, that report will be prepared by Energy Co and provided to the minister. The department will then prepare a secretary assessment report, which pulls together all of those findings and makes recommendations. And then the minister for planning decides on the basis of that report, whether or not to grant approval um, and if so, on what conditions. So that, that's sort of a, a summary of the process and, and what's involved. I'm just going to, and I've touched on this briefly, but the content of the EIS itself, um, which is the environmental impact statement. So it, it deals with the matters that are expressly raised by the, the planning secretary in, in its environmental assessment requirements, which in this particular project, um, notably doesn't deal with the question of uh, climatic impacts on the proposed infrastructure. The environmental planning and assessment regulations uh, also set out matters that must be dealt with in terms of the content of the EIS. Again, all of those requirements relate to the impact of the infrastructure on the environment. The only place I could find where there was an express requirement for consideration of hazards and risks was in the guidelines for the preparation of an environmental impact statement where state significant infrastructure is uh, being considered. 
that guideline is picked up by the planning regulations, but it's a little bit vague. It talks about the need for an EIS to set out the strategic context for the proposed development, and that includes an assessment of hazards and risks, flooding, bushfire, contaminated land, steep slopes, landslips, mine subsidence, coastal hazards, and relevantly, it talks about climate change, but I'm actually yet to see how this plays out in practice. This is a summary of where, on my analysis, climate resilience is considered in this planning framework, particularly with respect to um, infrastructure projects like this transmission line. Uh, so again, the statutory requirements primarily focus on the impact on the environment, not the impact of the environment on the infrastructure. As I said, the guidelines for state significant infrastructure do require consideration of the strategic context, which includes hazards and risks, uh, and certainly in respect of the location of, of the Central West, Arana, REZ, consideration has been given to bushfire risks and flooding and things of that nature, but there's no express requirement um, in the statute to consider the impacts of the climate uh, and geographical location on the infrastructure. In the scoping report, which was prepared early on for this transmission project, it does identify bushfire risks, both during construction. And during construction, the focus has been on evacuation routes for personnel. But it also deals with uh, the impacts of bushfire on the operation of, of the transmission lines. And the recommendation, at least the preliminary recommendation, which will be fleshed out in the um, environmental impact statement, has been a recommendation for ongoing vegetation management along the transmission lines and asset protection zones around the energy hubs uh, and the switching stations having regard to relevant Australian guidelines, standards and building codes. There's also the potential for these matters to be raised and, and resilience matters to be raised during the consultation process. And if they're raised by a relevant member of the public or uh, another approval body, uh, they, they have to be considered. And the other opportunity for climate resilience to be considered is when the planning secretary prepares its report to the minister making recommendations, including any proposed conditions of consent. Those conditions could deal with the need to ensure that the infrastructure is built and maintained to ensure climate um, or resilience against climate change. So again, just to summarise the key points, there's no statutory requirement to consider climate resilience in planning assessment, but practically it is considered uh, having regard to the geographic location of proposed infrastructure, particularly in the context of looking at the strategic context, which is a requirement by the guidelines. There, there is a statutory mechanism to impose conditions of consent to deal with, for example, ongoing maintenance obligations and the requirement to comply with relevant Australian standards, which could be picked up um, in the recommendation to the minister or through the consultation process. Uh, I wanted to note as a final point that in New South Wales, there was a um, resilience outcomes for the planning system document released in December last year, which identifies these seven principles uh, to build resilience into the planning framework in New South Wales. We're yet to see how this is going to play out in practice, but the seven 
uh, motherhood statements, if I can call it that, are sustainable places and communities, adaptable places and communities, governance and accountable decisions, the regulatory framework, settlement planning, locally led and place-based approach for shared responsibility and recovery, adaption and transition pathways. So that's it from me. Well, thanks very much, Stephanie. I, I should say that just compared with the very recent amendments in Victoria, the New South Wales planning context is less optimistic. I think particularly with the critical state, um, you know, significant infrastructure designation, but that was always going to happen and it was always going to be fast track. But thank you very much for pointing out the ways in which it is still possible that climate resilience may be taken into account. So thank you very much. And now I'm going to hand over to Philippa. Thank you, everybody. And um, I'd like to pay my respect to the elders, traditional owners of the land, past and present first. Okay, so the first question we've been asking ourselves is, why is this a significant project? And you can see here on my slides that we have um, vast areas in our renewable energy zone, expressions of interest by more than 140 projects underway. You can see that they um, are renewable energy zone in Queensland, runs up and down the coast, most of it. Uh, and um, these sites have been picked, as we say over here, as having good quality renewable resources and other characteristics suitable for renewable energy development. Okay, so you can see that this is going to be a big topic. The next question we asked ourselves, well, how does land use planning um, deal with all this economic and development activity? Uh, I'm going to talk about that. But before we get to that particular um, consideration, I just want to make some uh, provisos, I, I guess, in that there are various ways of building resilience into our network capacity. Some of those were covered in this morning's presentations. And I actually see the big players going into the future will be over here, the idea of localized generation and off-grid support, the idea of diversification of different types of renewable energy, um, having spare capacity, design and engineering standards all have a role to play. And in fact, going into the future, as we have more and more rooftop uh, solar generation and off-grid capacity, it may be that land use planning um, becomes less and less of a um, significant consideration. Nevertheless, we know there's going to be some big and major developments going ahead and land use planning does give the opportunity to give some preemptive oversight and regulation, regulatory framework to ensure resilience of our infrastructure. So I'll talk next about the land use planning system in Queensland. Okay, there are two, two streams portrayed in this slide. The traditional one on the left-hand side is where we have an overarching act set up at the state level for land use planning, as in all the other states. Uh, we then have various planning instruments, starting with the state planning policy, tra which tracks through into regional planning instruments and then into local planning instruments, and local councils then interpret their local planning instruments and give development approvals on that basis. So there's a stream, a sort of hierarchy acting through that. This is the route that uh, many of our solar farms will be taking that conventional development assessment path, looking at local planning instruments. On the other side, I've portrayed a sort of um, a more of a development assessment um, pathway. And this is one that shows 
the um, influence the state can have on these bigger projects. So that it's devised state development assessment provisions and referral assessment by the state assessment and referral agency. Now, local authorities may be required to refer development applications to SARA, but in some cases, and this includes wind farms now, SARA acts as the referral assessment agency, but also as the manager and assessment authority. So this side of the equation is actually not operating for wind farms now. We're, we're working with state-based codes and a state-based decision maker for wind farms in Queensland. So let's just have a look at a few of these aspects in a little bit more detail. So um, starting at the top, which you know governs this planning uh, framework overall, we have a statement in the Planning Act in Section 3, the objectives that sustainable development, of course, will maintain the cultural, economic, physical and social well-being of peoples and communities, including creating and maintaining well-serviced, healthy, prosperous, livable and resilient communities with affordable, e efficient and safe and sustainable development. So you can see that we have mention of resilience in terms of communities, and we also have the idea of safe and sustainable development, which obviously uh, electricity generators have a role to play in that too. Okay, but the reality is very few actual decisions are framed or based on the objectives of the Act, Section 3. Everybody considering development applications obsesses over their planning instruments. So let's have a look at the key planning instruments here. Well, the state planning policy, which is supposed to um, integrate downwards into all other uh, local planning instruments and regional ones, has this has a specific policy on um, natural hazards, risk and resilience. And here it sets up some useful planning principles uh, across the board. So it says development in bushfire, flood, landslide, storm time, tide, inundation or erosion prone natural hazard areas should either avoid the natural hazard area or where it's not possible to avoid the natural hazard area, mitigate the risks to people and property to an acceptable or tolerable level. That's the key principle. We know that development in natural hazard areas should not hinder disaster management capacity and capabilities. So loss of electricity would be a hindrance, I guess. And um, a fit for purpose risk assessment should be undertaken to identify and achieve an acceptable or tolerable level of risk for personal safety and property in natural hazard areas. So there's a few points to note here um, about these principles. Firstly, that it, this is not just about citing to avoid natural hazard areas. Uh, and we've seen from the first slide that these um, REZs have been picked for uh, a number of multiple reasons. And that's typical of land use planning decisions. They've got to look at costs, availability of the resource, um, uh, environmental constraints, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's not just about avoidance. We have the ideas of, you know, if you are in a natural hazard area, then you must go to an accept acceptable or tolerable, tolerable um, level of risk. So it's risk-based. So another important point to note is this does not seem to single out electrical critical infrastructure. These are generic principles for every kind of development. So uh, query, do we need something that's a little bit more specific or a little bit more rigorous or a little bit more precautionary for critical infrastructure here? Thirdly, this um, this 
document does not identify what acceptable or tolerable level of risk is or looks like. Um, we know that acceptable risk doesn't require any further action. Tolerable risk is one that the community accepts, but further actions will be necessary over time or through development conditions. So we're not told anything specific, basically, uh, to for some to an extent that's deliberate because um, insofar as these are looking at bushfire or flood type risks, we, we um, there's a feeling that these should be decentralized decisions because local regions, local, uh, local capacities may all vary across the board. So we can't be definitive in how we define these things. I query whether that's the case for major infrastructure um, development. Another, so another point is that these um, these principles only apply in your natural hazard areas. So um, this is a really artificial way of thinking about risk and about natural hazards, that you have the line where that one side you're in a flood risk area and the other side you aren't. I know for a fact that they've abandoned that kind of planning in, in flood resilience. I think about, you know, everything is subject to, to flooding. It's just how much, how intense and how frequently. And so you should have your provisions, you know, within the most hazardous areas, medium hazard areas, and least hazardous areas. So this is still working on the black line. And if you're one side of the black line, all these rules apply. If you're on the other side, nothing applies. Well, that's just not gonna work in a, you know, as climate change uh, comes in. For bushfire, we don't have that kind of mapping in Queensland. Um, and for cyclones, well, the, they can travel over huge areas of land. So there's, there's no natural hazard areas being mapped out for them. So it's a little bit of a, um, you know, it looks really good on paper, but it's a little bit, um, it, it's not sufficient. And then down here, we find that in, within these hazard areas, uh, limited as they are, there should be a fit for purpose risk assessment um, to identify acceptable, tolerable level of risk. And I'm thinking, well, surely for, you know, highly expensive, critical infrastructure, we should be having a fit for purpose risk assessment in every kind of um, development proposal, not just those in a natural hazard area or you know, hopefully they'll be avoiding those worst case scenarios anyway. Okay, so that's, um, now remember that that state planning policy gets translated down into regional planning um, policy and then into local planning instruments. The upshot of all that is that local planning instruments may actually reflect these principles differently, in some cases not at all, so you might get quite divergent treatment across different local authority areas. Okay, and uh, yeah, and it can be quite opaque seeing where and where and how exactly these principles are playing out anyway. So that's my look at quick take on planning instruments in Queensland. I'm now going to talk about a development assessment assessment code, and this is specifically for wind farm developments. We don't have one for solar um, uh, or any other kind of renewable energy actually at this stage. We have the state development assessment provisions are used by the state to assess wind farm developments. And you can see here that one of the factors they will take into account is to ensure that the development is resilient to natural hazards. Um, that's about it in, in, in that particular um, code. We don't see that this is not developed into a clear uh, um, performance outcome or into acceptable outcomes, which is the standard format for our performance-based planning system. Uh, and it's, uh, yes, we, we are left a little bit in the dark to see how that translates in practice. Things to note about the code, um, the, the treatment of this code is that it's a, it's a balancing task. Uh, the, or, um, the state 
reserves the ability to balance and weigh up different planning considerations when it's applied. Okay, so if you think that all is a little bit opaque and discretionary, um, don't you, there's more to it in that the Planning Act is only one aspect under which um, development can go ahead. It offers development approvals. Um, there's also designated development. This is going to be important for transition lines and for um, other kinds of critical infrastructure. These are things that are designated in advance, uh, maybe a bit of an EIS pro pro process ostensibly under the act under that section three um objectives but then once it gets designated it's all accepted development there's not really any further assessment and completely outside of the planning act really is the state development and public works organization act and the economic development act which um go their own way a bit. Um, they'll have an environmental impact assessment procedure, such as Stephanie was talking about. Uh, we don't know what will happen in resilience. They're not subject to the state planning policy or the um, other lovely things that we've um, I've raised here. So you can see some of our biggest developments are all going to go this way. Okay, so looking at that framework, just a quick snapshot. I don't want to bore you too much with Queensland details, but um, you can see that there are some weaknesses in this framework for resilience. The SPP planning principles only relate to development in designated natural hazard areas. I think that's concerning given the way that natural hazards play out. There's no detail on what acceptable or tolerable risks tend to look like, especially for electrical infrastructure. I think we can probably resolve that problem. There's a degree of an um, unknown uh, opaqueness about how local planning instruments will integrate these SPP provisions. Um, there's a default assessment benchmarks, I didn't really talk about them, which take place there in the SPP. If you haven't covered off on it, um, they're even more limited. Then there's um, there may be some inconsistent treatment when development is, is assessed by local planning authorities, and of course there are the, all these other assessment pathways where resilience isn't really getting the focus that it is in the planning system anyway. Okay, now I was asked to think about uh, having listened to the other um, uh, speakers and the other listening into cross you know um, jurisdiction comparisons I we have got some overall recommendations for land use planning which we're sort of talking through at the moment so um, you know coming out of the Queensland scene we see that avoidance in reality is only one strategy and quite possibly the least likely to be implemented because decisions are made on the basis of where you have a good resource good asset good business case etc etc and that's not something that's going to go away in in uh, in land use planning I, I think especially when you consider that there are other ways of building resilience into the network including you know off-grid off-grid facilities diversification etc okay so we're, we're looking at a more of a risk-based type of assessment process uh which we've gone fully down for flood risk i know in queensland uh, but we should be able i think to come to a more clear um, definition of what tolerable or acceptable risk looks like for ele electrical infrastructure. Uh, so we should be defining this, and I think this is a role that national guidelines have to play. Certainly that's what we've seen in uh, flood guidance. It comes through as national guidelines, and you then adopt them as a performance outcome in your um, relevant planning instruments. Okay, um, and again, this could come through in development conditions if we're not going, you know, depending on what site you have, depends on what level of risk you have, depends on what kind of building, engineering, design elements you might have, but also, you know, what kind of environmental and context specific um, provisions you might have to adopt. 
Okay, it seems to me that in the case of electrical infrastructure, which is really quite important in terms of natural hazard situations, a precautionary, you know, the good old precautionary principle is warranted. So we need, I'm sure we can get to some point of defining that. Bearing in mind again that um, there's a cost benefit analysis as well to be made here because we know that, um, you know, perhaps within 20 or 30 years, our rooftop solar panel coverage is going to be so strong that, you know, off grid supplies will give us the kind of resilience that, at least for domestic users, we're looking at. So just be a little bit wary of that in the mix. And then I think I've said national guidelines need to be actually incorporated in state planning frameworks in some degree of detail or, or cross-referenced, integrated, incorporated, we call it here, and with binding force um, to the extent there's, there's always going to be an element of discretion and balancing going on in plan, planning, but we should all be adopting these standards, I guess, and that goes for the other assessment pathways as well, need to be covered, have reference to these national guidelines. And lastly, and this is really, you know, you know the, the, perhaps the elephant in the room, that we need more training and expertise um, among planners and everyone really as risk assessors and more knowledge of what the plan is for our future trajectory our, our, our you know great adventure into renewable energy and uh, how we so that we can make, make sure these guidelines do get um, implemented and I do think that um, while planning is limited in so many ways if we just think of it about it as a yes no um, system it is a good preemptive opportunity it is a good opportunity that these um, generators and developers must give account to the the public and be um you know transparent a degree of transparency and a degree of compliance is built into the system so i mean i guess overall i think all of us would agree that you know if we're going to do this we need to move quite fast just beyond these motherhood statements to a degree of um really um detailing what that looks like thank you well thank you so much uh, philippa for sharing your your perspectives on the queensland system but also you know based on your very considerable expertise as a planning law academic which really does sort of you know shine through there and i suppose for me what i was thinking about with at spp was really where is you know as you said the nat natural hazard area anymore um, but I think that the ESKI project is something which has gone to a great deal of effort to at least try to inform decision makers about where these sort of natural, or as they would say, the climate hazard areas are. Um, I think that's sort of a first step in trying to provide that information. But critically, what is the level of community risk? And how do we ascertain what the level of community, uh, you know, tolerance for risk is? And that just keeps coming up. It doesn't matter which uh, sort of side of the law or frameworks that you look at. We just keep coming back to saying, well, the community has to decide about what they um, prepared to tolerate. So mm -hmm. maybe um, if you could comment on what would some sort of process be by which we we consult the community we talk now obviously the community but let's just say very specifically a project which is going to happen within a renewable energy zone what would the um, planning authorities do to ascertain the level of risk we we've got furthest in this with flood risk 
okay, in Queensland. And we've had the Brisbane floodplain strategy. They've done all sorts of modeling and scenario planning, but they have done some outreach to the community as well and looked at planning schemes. And that's admirable. And I think people, you know, if you have a house in a floodplain area, you're very concerned about that. You're in there, you want to know, and you'll be involved in making that decision, or at least some people will. When it comes to the supply of electrical infrastructure, you know what? I don't think people care. I don't. Th I think they're happy for business to be told what standard they have to do uh, uh, apply for. Uh, you know, meet, and that's it. And and you then can go for a fairly um, uh, standard, scientific, cost benefit sort of analysis, which is. What's going to materialize anyway in the end? There's a degree of cynicism I know about all kinds of um uh you know planning consultation exercises. So this would be low down, I think, on on people's um agenda agendas when it comes to electrical infrastructure. And the other thing is, you see, given a choice, I believe, you know, Australians in particular, maybe, but probably the world over would say, give me a rooftop solar panel, spend your money that way, and then I, I make it so that I can take it off the grid or give me a battery, put a subsidy in there, put your money in that, and then I've got independence and I don't care, you know, your home is your castle sort of thing. So I personally, I think we can afford to be a little bit behind the scenes and, and um, you know, the experts should get in and say, what's what do we need to make sure that anything that we build now is going to be of um, you know, strong and resilient, um, given its role in the network as a whole over the next, say, 20 years, because I really think in 20 or 30 years' time, the impact of rooftop solar is going to be, and the off-grid systems and the diverse sorts of systems is going to build a lot of resilience for us. It's really quite an exciting time. Resilience is going to come with these new forms of um, energy, I believe. Yes. Would it, would um, Stephanie or Anne, would you like to comment at all on this idea of sort of, you know, getting a, a measure of community appetite for, for risk? So it's a really interesting one because we have a couple of clashing um like basically everyone in the community wants to make sure lights go on when they turn a switch you know whichever way so that's one but then what we do know especially around um large infrastructure investment is that it is you know particular communities the ones in renewable energy zones actually that have that in their backyard and um, um there is which is why you know that afternoon building community resilience to electricity infrastructure failure is one thing, but it, like taking the community along on this infrastructure journey, 10,000 kilometers of transmission line and, you know, massive a ninefold increase of actual, you know, wind farms and, and solar. It, look, honestly, it's going to be a tricky one. And planning law, interestingly, is actually the arena where this plays out. So this is where people, where conflict around infrastructure development really plays out. It doesn't play out earlier. It should play out earlier, which is another good reason, apart from you know climate adapted, resilient systems. It's another good reason to have people involved really, really early in this, because um, I've I've been following you know German planning laws. My background, I've been following the Germans who've been trying to get their north-south transmission connections happening for the last fifteen years, and it is it is it's planning law that that you know that uh, stops this basically. Like to, 
tooth and nail every kilometer basically um so so we kind of there is a there's a there's um multiple interfacing things everyone would agree globally we want resilient systems that make sure or like you know as, as a state or as a country every australian wants a resilient system but there's then also the the um, individual um individual infrastructure investment that is in very in particular people's backyard and um I don't have a solution to that. I kind of don't want to ask the community too much in a way because time is pressing. We need to have this happen now. So it's a, I'm I'm really um if you want to do appropriate and proper um community involvement in these decisions, that's gonna take possibly much more time than we have to make this all happen. Thanks. And, and Philip, I know you want to respond immediately, but um, Stephanie, I'm really looking forward to your response. And I'm going to ask you a very specific question as well. Philippa, yeah. Uh, me quickly? Yeah. Oh, uh, thank you, Rosemary. Um, we don't need to confuse the um, community's objection to new um, transmission lines facilities in their backyard, those are your standard. They're looking at multi-pronged objections, amenity, acoustics, etc., which is slightly different to um, our focus purely on whether in that infrastructure, if it goes ahead on all those other grounds, is going to be um, resilient. I think that perhaps the um, the bottom line for communities then is how much do you want to spend? What's the budget? Yeah. And we can say really that it should be big business that can be should be spending it because ultimately in 20 years time, we might have our roof, rooftop solar and battery and this is really going to be supplying the heavy industries as much as anything would be my view. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, Stephanie, um, yeah, so your response to, to um, you know, community appetite for risk, but I was just thinking when you put up those eight different kinds of land uses which the transmission infrastructure is going to cross I mean that's just extraordinary and how, how is that going to play out it, it is extraordinary and it's it's I suppose an example of why this sort of infrastructure is dealt with at the state level rather than at the local level because at the local level you'd be having to deal with all of the landowners uh, affected by that infrastructure and each of the local councils and then dealing with their individual policies that might be relevant to the land use of that particular land where the infrastructure is going to cross. So that's the real benefit, I suppose, in New South Wales from an infrastructure delivery perspective of having a state system which designates development as critical infrastructure. You then effectively ignore the land use zoning and it then just becomes about the environmental assessment process. And that assessment process involves consultation and exhibition of the documents. And I think what we're going to see is, um, particularly in some areas where there are sensitive land use zones nearby, a lot of public uh, objection to those applications. But as Philippa and Anne, I think, have touched on, I think a lot of that commentary is going to be around, you know, not, not on my back door, as opposed to what is the holistic view of the resilience of this infrastructure. And this is, I think, the, the tension with 
the overall strategy and looking at each project on a project by project basis. The opportunity for public consultation is really in relation to those individual projects as opposed to the overall resilience concept and, and how the state is planning to deliver holistically. And I mean, I, I sort of echo some of Philippa and Anne's comments in a sense. It's, it's very difficult to get that consultation from the community up front in terms of the holistic area. I mean, certainly for the Urana West Renewable Energy Zone, there was a lot of early consultation, not statutory consultation, but early voluntary consultation about the areas where that zone was to be placed. And particular areas of, you know, very good agricultural farming land were avoided in order to, to minimise the impact. And there was consultation with local landowners, including Indigenous groups to avoid sacred sites and things of that nature. So there's a lot of consultation that happens early on, even before these documents are published. Um, but then really, really the consultation and the opportunity for any formal feedback is very much in relation to each project as opposed to the overall resilience piece, I think, and, and how that sits further up. Um, and, and I think there is a real need, you know, in the wake of the bushfires and, and the floods for us to think about how we deal with that at a holistic global level, global as in, as in you know, whole of state, whole of country approach. Great. Um, I don't see any questions in the Q&A. Um, so that being the case, uh, I just wanted to say that I, I'm really so grateful um, to all of you, Philippa and Anne and Stephanie, because when I reached out, I really sort of was inviting you to join this project about which you had heard nothing. Um, and so it was really an, a, a leap of faith where you said, yeah, sure, we, we'll get on board. And I've really, really enjoyed our discussions to bring three planning lawyers together and, and to think through all of these really difficult issues. And we are far more refined in our thinking today um, than we have been before. And I think the conference has been a very good opportunity for us to to bring our ideas together, to synthesize them. And we're also, just to let the uh, audience know that we're also going to be um, pitching a very significant um, article to an international law journal. And we've already put out some feelers on that. So thank you very much to all three of you, not only for being panelists today, but for being um, my co-authors.